Hi, I'm David Nuttall. And I'm Teresa Nuttall. And welcome to Love Chapel Hill, where our name is our mission to love Chapel Hill with the heart of Jesus. We invite you to worship with us. Hi, everyone. We're Matt and Rachel, and we're thankful you're here today. If this is your first time visiting us, we want to hear from you. Look for the link that says Connect Card on either Facebook or YouTube where you're watching us. Fill out that information and our connection team will get back to you. Also, if anyone watching today wants to know more about following Jesus or is interested in baptism, you can fill out the Connect Card to let us know. Have a great week!
so not even death can shake us. The victor has won, and heaven has come, and now you're taking us higher. Oh
Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, rivers of living water will flow from within them. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Hey, Love Chapel Hill, we're going to keep rolling today in our series through the Old Testament prophets. And the prophet that we're looking at today is Deborah. She's a really interesting figure in the Old Testament for a lot of reasons. Um, One being that she actually fills uh, two different roles in the Old Testament leadership structure. So a little bit of background on Deborah before we dive in. Uh, But you can get ready uh, by turning to Judges chapter 4. And uh, that's where her story is found. So in Judges chapter 4, there's the narrative of her story. And then Judges chapter 5 is a song that is attributed to her, uh, this prophetic song of triumph and victory. And uh, so that's where we're going to be today, Judges chapter 4 and 5. So a little bit of background. Uh, We've talked before about the Old Testament leadership structure and the way that most of the leaders that we see in the Old Testament can fit within uh, five different categories. And so the first category that we see is this category that we're going to call the catalyst. And this is a pioneer type of figure that God uses uh, to do something brand new, for something, uh, some new ground to be broken through this person's leadership. And so we see Adam and Eve, obviously, in that Uh, category in that covenant with humanity that God makes with them in creation. Uh, Then we see uh, Noah. He fits into that category uh, as God um, renews this commitment to humanity and begins again with Noah's family. Uh, Abraham certainly fits in that category. Uh, God uh, blesses his family as well, uh, but in this different kind of way, this promise that's given to Abraham that he's not just going to bless this one family, but use this one family to bless the entire world. Um, After Abraham, we get Moses, who is one of these catalysts and pioneering figures. He leads God's people out of slavery in Egypt, and God gives him that covenant of the law on Mount Sinai. And uh, so through Moses, uh, God is saying this isn't just a family that I'm establishing in the world, but a nation that I'm establishing in the world. And so um, following Moses, uh, we have Joshua. So after uh, Moses leads the people uh, through the wilderness and and that 40 years um, that they spend in the wilderness after God has led them out of slavery uh, and they're moving towards the promised land, Joshua is that catalyst figure that God uses to actually uh, lead the people as they cross into the promise that God has given them and leads them into that promised land. So that first category of catalyst, uh, those leaders can fit in different places. Sometimes they are referred to as prophets, um, and and that's definitely a key part of their role. Uh, But we see them as these pioneering, uh, groundbreaking type leaders that God uses. Uh, after the catalyst, and especially after the story of Joshua, uh, we have that next category of leadership, um, which are the judges. And so when we say judge, we're not talking about like a court system or part of the legal system, uh, even though they did um, 
dispense wisdom and lead with their wisdom as they heard the disputes and debates and, and they, they weighed in on that with God's wisdom. Uh, but they're often um, even military type leaders that God raises up um, to set his people free and to overthrow uh, oppressors that have come against them. And so uh, that is one of the roles, uh, that second role is one of the roles that Deborah fits in. She's one of the judges, obviously, since her story is told in the book of Judges. Uh, and she is one of the few judges. In fact, she's the rare judge um, that is completely portrayed in this sense of obedience to God, faithfulness to God, living and leading with God's wisdom. The other judges, even those who lead well, um, their flaws are exposed in the story as we go through. And the further we get through the stories of the judges, um, the more chaos comes, the more flaws and failures are exposed. And it becomes this um, very gut-wrenching, heartbreaking story of demise into chaos. Um, so that's where that's where Deborah fits on on one hand is in that second role of the judge. Uh, the third is the role of prophet. And in the story that we're going to read today, uh, Deborah is referred to as one of God's prophets. Um, and the prophet role is a person who speaks God's word to the people. Uh, the fourth is the role of the priest uh, who actually go to God on behalf of the people. Uh, and then the fifth is the role of the king. And the role of the king is to lead God's people with God's heart and with God's wisdom. Uh, so the reason all of that matters for where we're going to be today uh, is for one, because Deborah is this rare figure who fills out two different roles. She is a judge and she is a prophet. Um, also because as the story of Judges, the book of Judges unfolds, and as we as we've said, they continue to descend into more and more chaos uh, and, and the brokenness is revealed more and more. There's this theme that emerges uh, where repeatedly uh, the author says this happened because the people uh, did whatever they saw right in their own eyes. They were only led by themselves. There was no submission or surrender to God. Uh, or to any kind of godly leadership. Uh, they only did what they thought was right and what they thought was best for them in their own eyes. Totally self-driven culture that had developed. The other theme that emerges is that it says, as the people only did what was right in their, in their own eyes, um, it says, this is because Israel had no king. And so you see this desire begin to emerge uh, and this case getting made for why Israel needs that, that fifth uh, role of leadership, that king to emerge, to lead God's people with God's heart. So that's where we pick up today. Um, another theme that's all throughout Judges, and then we see it go throughout the rest of the Old Testament. And in so many ways, it's the story of all of human history. It's not a story that's unique to Israel in any way. Uh, it's, it's a common story of human history. And that's where the story actually begins, um, is this cycle of rebellion that we see over and over again in the Old Testament. And, uh, it's, and in, the, in Judges, it is so clear. Um, and so at, at, at the beginning of the story, um, it talks about the people having turned their hearts away from God. 
And so there's this sense of rebellion and the people um, have have rejected God uh, and gone their own way, turned their backs on him and they have been living in rebellion. Um, what we see happen every time they do that, they walk themselves right into uh, defeat. They walk themselves right into oppression. They're overthrown again and again by, by enemy nations uh, and defeated by enemy nations. And it's their rebellion that walks them right into that over and over again. But what we see happen is this cycle where when they um, awake to that rebellion and they have this wake up awakening moment to their rebellion, they respond with repentance. And so the cycle moves uh, from rebellion to repentance. And it says that God hears their cries. He's a God of compassion, of grace. He's slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And he hears their cries and he raises up a leader for rescue. And that's the next piece. God rescues them. Uh, and out of that rescue, he brings them into a time of renewal and this time of peace. And so repeatedly you'll hear in the book of Judges, uh, that cycle repeated. that The people turned away from God, turned their hearts from him in rebellion. They were overthrown. Uh, it brought about this awakening of repentance. God heard their cries, raised up a leader to rescue them, and then brought them into a time of renewal. Often it's said that, that, that out, after that and out of that, there's a season of 40 years of peace that God leads his people through. So you can hear the Old Testament themes and the biblical themes all over that. So that's where we are. Um, I know that's a lot of background, uh, but that helps us understand where we are and where we're going to be going with the rest of this story today. So Judges chapter four, the story of Deborah, the prophet and the judge. Here's what it says, starting with verse four. Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites came to her to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go, take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun, and lead the way to Mount Tabor. I will lure Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give them into your hands. Barak said to her, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Very well, Deborah said, I will go with you. But because of the way you are going about this, the honor will not be yours. For the Lord will hand Sisera over to a woman. So Deborah went with Barak, with Barak to Kadesh, where he summoned Zebulun and Naphtali. 10,000 men followed him, and Deborah also went with him. Now we get to the battle scene here, and it says, uh, picking up in verse 13, Sisera, who is the leader of this enemy army, gathered together his 9,000 iron chariots and all the men with him. So this shows uh, the military strength of this Canaanite army, of this enemy army. 
that had been oppressing God's people. Uh, and this is what Deborah and Barak are up against uh, in this battle. So 900 iron chariots. This would be state-of-the-art military technology at this time. Uh, absolutely outmatching anything that the Israelites had. Um, they are completely outmatched when it comes to military strength and power. Then Deborah said to Barak, Go. This is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down to Mount Tabor, followed by 10,000 men. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword. And Sisera abandoned his chariot and fled on foot. A little bit of background that's happening here in this battle. Uh, part of where this is happening in this valley that this is happening and by the river that gets mentioned here. Um, what a lot of scholars are read into this and say that uh, what is happening in this moment. Uh, and we get this from uh, the song that Deborah sings in chapter five as she gives some of this information as well, uh, that the Lord sends this storm. There's this overflow of that river and these chariots that had been completely the advantage of the enemy army uh, get stuck in the mud from this overflow and this flooding of the river uh, and they're stuck. And so what had been their advantage actually uh, becomes their complete disadvantage. And so Sisera, this, ar this army leader, military leader, is forced to leave this behind and to flee on foot. And it says that his entire army is routed and he is the last survivor. He is running for his life. In running for his life, he comes up to a tent uh, of a husband and wife uh, who, are, who are at this tent and he comes and he begs them for a place to hide and a place to flee uh, for safety. So here's what happens. Um, Sisera, however, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, because uh, there were friendly relations between them. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. So he entered her tent and she put a covering over him. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. She opened up a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him up. As we're going to move further into this story, just a heads up that if there are little ones who are engaging uh, along with you today in worship, uh, this story is about to take a really wild turn. So just a little warning there, okay? Uh, this is such a strange story. Uh, and, and holds nothing back in the details that it gives. And, and scripture is so beautiful and powerful and at, time deeply, at times deeply troubling because of the kinds of stories that it tells us and that it tells us about ourselves. So keep that in mind as we move on. Stand in the doorway, he told her, as he laid down to rest after fleeing. If someone comes by and asks you, is anyone here, say no. But Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the tent peg through his temple into the ground, and he died. Barak came by in pursuit of Sisera, and Jael went out to meet him. Come, she said, I will show you the man you're looking for. So he went in with her, and there lay Sisera with the tent peg through his temple, dead. 
On that day, God subdued Jabin, the Canaanite king, before the Israelites, and the hand of the Israelites grew stronger and stronger against Jabin, the Canaanite king, until they destroyed him. This is a troubling story. And there's a lot for us to work through here on this. Uh, but there are a few things that, that we need uh, to press into today, okay? Um, one of the things that really stands out and that we have to start with is the way that God answers his promises. The first thing that we need to notice is that this story is telling us that God keeps his promises. And I know that sounds like the most cliche, uh, shallow, simple thing that you could possibly take out of this story, but it's not. It's shocking and it's surprising that God would keep his promises, not because of his character. We know that's completely consistent with his character. And over and over again, he tells us that's who he is, abounding in love and faithfulness. He keeps his covenant with his people. But the thing that's shocking about it is the fact that we break that covenant over and over and over again. God has never failed us, but we are consistently failing and falling. Broken humanity. We see that story in this tragic and graphic kind of way all, the, all throughout Judges. And the further, if you think this story is rough, the further we get into the book of Judges, the way that it just descends into chaos and things fall apart. It is gut-wrenching and it is heartbreaking. But through that all, there is one single thread that runs and it's that God keeps his promises even as we fail again and again and again. This cycle of rebellion that ends up in a downward spiral into chaos. And God meets it every single time with rescue and with renewal, restoring us, bringing, into, bringing us into this reconciled relationship with him again and again. He keeps his promises. One of the ways that we see this happen is that Deborah the prophet speaks this word of prophecy to Barak. And she says, because of the way you are going about this battle, you're not going to be the one who's going to receive the glory for it. God is going to give that glory to a woman. And God's going to hand the, the king over and hand your enemy over to a woman. And so when we read this story, and we're starting out and we know that we're preaching on Deborah today. And we know that right at the beginning of the chapter, it talks about Deborah and sets her up as this main figure in this chapter of the story. Our assumption is that God is going to keep that promise by giving Deborah the glory in the battle. But is that who gets the glory in the battle? No, it's J.L. It's this woman who in her tent delivers the decisive blow in this battle. She's the one that ends up getting the glory. And even reading through this, I am assuming this is going to be Deborah. And all throughout uh, the week wrestling through this passage, I just keep thinking about that it's Deborah that's the person. And then it dawns that no, it's actually J.L. who is the one who receives the glory. God keeps his promises, not always the way we think he's going to at the start of the story. And we can see the way the story begins. We can see the foreshadowing and we can assume we know exactly where this is going to go. And it takes a twist. And that's the way his promises often work. He is keeping his promises in your life. 
He is keeping his promises in your life. It might not look like it. And you might have thought that him keeping his promises meant the story was going to go in this one direction that you had planned out. And now that it's moving in different directions and the storyline seems completely broken, you can't believe he's going to do it, but he will continue to do it. He keeps his promises, not always in the way you assume that he's going to when the story starts. The second part about him keeping his promises that I see is uh, just this odd but interesting little fact about Deborah and about JL. So the name Deborah means bee, as in like buzzing bee. Okay, get that image in your head. So it, her name means bee. Uh, JL's name means mountain goat, which is unfortunate. That's if you're about to name a kid, don't go with mountain goat. Okay. Uh, but so that's what her name means. Uh, and that seems odd at first and seems like totally of, of no consequence that that would be the meaning of their names until you begin to think back to the way God has promised to, to the promises that God has made to his people in the past. When you think about bee, you get the image of honey. When you think about a mountain goat, you get the image of milk. And what was that promise that God made to his people about the kind of inheritance they were going to receive? This land flowing with milk and honey. And Deborah and Jael become these twin symbols, the, the goat and the bee, <laughs> the milk and the honey, these twin symbols of God's faithfulness to his promises. Yes, he keeps his immediate promise in this story of Jael receiving the glory. But he also does that in a way that fulfills the grand promise that he's made. He's always weaving these stories together. And the way he's keeping his promise to you now is going to fit exactly in with the larger story of who he is and of how he operates and of how he has kept his promises throughout human history and his engagement with us. This is who he is. He keeps his promises and he's going to keep on doing that with you. So if number one is that God keeps his promises, number two is that the Lord will go before you. This is a statement that Deborah makes to Barak and this promise that she gives to him. Go and the Lord will go before you. I find it really interesting that God's go command here, uh, God's go was not for Deborah. It was for Barak. The Holy Spirit speaks through Deborah and she gives him this courage and this challenge to go. And what's his answer? I'll do it if you go with me. All right. And I get that. I understand. Uh, it's a way of giving honor to Deborah, not just in that moment, but throughout history. Now it's recorded here that Barak saw Deborah as this woman who was empowered to lead by the Holy Spirit. He sensed that the Spirit of God was with Deborah. She was a wise leader being led by God. And she trusted her. Barak trusted her. And he said, if you go, I know God's going to be with us. So I'll go if you go with me. So it's this way of honoring Deborah. But it's also this sense that it shows this lack of trust that Barak had. God's go was not for Deborah. It was for Barak. And he didn't want to go by himself. So he begs Deborah to go and she does. I want to challenge you in this. If God is giving you a go, then don't wait for somebody else to answer it. 
If God is giving you a go, then don't wait for somebody else to answer it. Who, who, who else are you waiting for to give you permission? Is God's permission enough for you? Is God's company enough for you? Is God's strategy enough for you? Is God's provision enough for you? Is God's blessing enough for you? Is God's backing enough for you? Who else are you waiting for? If he's given you the go, then don't wait for somebody else to answer it. It's your responsibility to answer it. I love the way that this honors Deborah's leadership as a set-apart leader of God who is speaking God's word and God's wisdom to his people. And at the same time, it reveals what is present in us all the time and that sense of that lack of, of trust. But hear the voice of Deborah through the Holy Spirit challenging you, go, go, and the Lord will go before you. The third thing that I see is this. Uh, we need to wake up Deborah. We need to wake up Deborah. Uh, in chapter five, in the song, that prophetic song and poem uh, that's recorded there uh, that talks about the victory and commemorates the victory so that generations of Israelites will continue to sing this song and remember what God did there. Uh, there's this beautiful poetic line there that says, wake up, wake up, Deborah. Wake up, wake up, Deborah. And when I read that, I feel like that is a challenge for the church today. We need to wake up the Deborahs. We need to wake up those spirit-anointed leaders among us who can speak God's word with courage and with encouragement to us and to provoke us into moving ahead and to challenge us, go, go, the Lord is with you and the Lord is going before you. We need to wake up our Debras. Uh, I celebrate all of the Debras that are in our church congregation, the women and the men who fit into this uh, this calling of listening to the Lord, of hearing the Lord's word for his people and having the anointing and the courage to speak it in order to challenge us forward. Um, I want to pause for just a minute and specifically honor the women in the church that fit that role of Deborah. I want to thank you for being leaders, for being preachers, for uh being disciple makers, for being people who are leading in compassion, uh, for being people who are raising up leaders among you. Thank you for waking up and for challenging the rest of us to wake up with you. I honor you as, as Deborahs in this congregation, uh, and I pray that we will continue to wake up with you. We need you. Keep challenging us and keep pushing us. We need to follow your lead. The last thing I would say is this. The last thing that I see is this final uh, statement. It's actually a statement that is made at the end of the book. And so it's repeated multiple times at the end of this book. And it's this. We need a king. We need a king. The book of Judges is making this case of how the people of Israel need a king. And it shows this cycle of rebellion um, and it shows this, this chaos that people are descending into and what happens when people simply follow their own lead 
uh, and don't submit themselves to the leadership of God and surrender to God's leadership in their lives. Uh, and it's saying we need a king. We need a king. And it's this transition point in Israel's story. After this uh, will come the moment when God says, OK, you keep asking me for a king. I'll give you a king. And guess what happens? The same cycle of rebellion. Why? I thought a king was what they needed. I thought that would be the answer of finishing out that, that fullness of that leadership structure of bringing in that fifth piece we talked about of the king. I thought that would do it. No, it didn't. David wasn't enough. Solomon wasn't enough. Saul wasn't enough. We see their brokenness as well. What we need is what humanity has always needed from the beginning and what we know we desperately need now. We need a king, but we need more than just any king. We need Jesus. We need Jesus who fulfills all five of those roles. The only human being who has ever lived to fulfill all five of those and to fulfill them completely and perfectly to the point of overflowing. We need Jesus who is the catalyst, the pioneer of the new way and the new creation. We need Jesus who is the judge, the judge who has the right to judge because he is the only one without sin. And yet what does he do with that right to judge? He takes the judgment upon himself, bringing us into a reconciled relationship with God. We need Jesus who is the prophet, the one who not just not only speaks the word of God to us, but is the word made flesh who became one of us, the living word of God embodied among us in flesh and blood. We need Jesus, who is the priest, not just a priest to lead us in the sacrificial rites for the atonement of sin, but to become the sacrifice for the atonement of sin. The God who lays himself down, the lion who willingly becomes the lamb, the sacrificial lamb, sheds his own blood to bring us forgiveness for our sins. And we need the king, Jesus the king, the only one who has ever led us with the true heart of God, leading his people. That's who we need, the king who has come to establish the kingdom here and now, not then and there as a far off reality, but a reality that is breaking in here and now. We need a king, and the answer is Jesus.
you won't find me No, I am not afraid Before me, behind me Always beside me No shadow, no valley Where you won't find me No, I am not and sisters of Love Chapel Hill. Um, you are loved, uh, you are missed, um, but I want to remind you um, that you are sent and you are called to. Um, and with that, um, we are grateful to get to hear a solid word from Matt today. And I want to send you off with one of my, one of my favorite old pastors would always say, God always gets the last word and it is a word of blessing. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the, the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord look upon you with favor and give you peace. Mm-hmm.